Welcome to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, the president of City College of New York. From City to the World is a show about how the work we're doing at City College matters to people across the city and throughout the world. We'll discuss the practical application of our research and work in solving real-world issues like poverty, homelessness, mental health challenges, and affordable housing. Today, we are coming into the very last days of Black History Month and we traditionally do a Black History Month show. This time, instead of highlighting some of the historical contributions of African-American people, we're going to look at some contemporary issues that have some particular resonance to communities of color and, and, and particularly to African-American communities. We're gonna be talking to two men who are currently working to address social ills that are still plaguing the African-American community in light specifically of the pandemic. In the first half of the show, our guest will be Bobby Derivel. He is the executive director of the Masters uh, in Public Administration, the MPA program at the Colin Powell School here at City College. That's a program dedicated to training young leaders in public administration, working in various government positions. And it is specifically tuned to addressing some of the unmet needs of communities like the communities around City College, Upper Manhattan, Harlem, Inwood, South Bronx. Um, now, Bobby has a background, as you'll learn, in public health, and we'll be talking to him about the relationship between the pandemic and public health issues and how the administration of public health in particular can uh, redress some of the ills that have come to light over the course of the pandemic. On the second half of the show, Clayton Banks, who is the co-founder and CEO of Silicon Harlem will join us. With him, we'll discuss how Silicon Harlem is working to transform Harlem and other urban markets into innovation and technology hubs. But we're also gonna talk about something that is uh, near and dear to Clayton's heart, I know from hearing him, which is the digital divide, the disparity between access to uh, digital technology of, of um, people of colored neighborhoods, you know, marginalized neighborhoods and, and better positioned, more affluent, typically more white neighborhoods and all the ways in which the digital divide um, creates other forms of disparity. Again, particularly during this very difficult pandemic year that we have lived through and, and will continue to be in for some time. So now let me tell you a little bit about our first guest, Bobby Darabell. Uh, Mr. Darabell is a trained public health practitioner with over eight years of experience in both public and private sectors. Before coming to City College, he served as Chief Operating Officer for a state-licensed home care service provider. He's a first-generation Haitian, Haitian-American. Bobby considers service a central passion in his life and currently serves as an executive board me member for Hands Up for Haiti, which is an organization that supports health initiatives in Northern Haiti. Mr. Durval has a BA in sociology from Fordham University, a master's in public health, and a master's in arts in international peace and conflict resolution from Arcadia University. So he is currently, I'm proud to say, the executive director of the master's program in public administration at Colin Powell School here at CCNY. And he brings a passion for the power of the collective 
to achieve better outcomes to society's most persistent challenges to that program, and we are lucky to have him. Bobby, welcome to From City to the World. Thank you so much, Vince. Uh, I greatly appreciate the invitation. Excited to chat with you today. Oh, I'm really excited uh, uh, to have you here, Bobby. Let's dive right in um, with you know the, the the looming question of the last year, which is this pandemic has had such clearly differential impacts on communities of color, African American communities in particular, as compared to you know to predominantly white communities. Can you can you um, go into a little bit of detail about uh, what explains that differential impact? Sure, that's a great question. I think it's absolutely critical, right, to understanding where we are as you uh, preface. For me, I think it's actually, uh, there's a simple place to start, which is structural racism, right? And I think it's important to unpack what exactly that we mean by structural racism. Um, most definitions make clear that racism is not simply, you know, just a result of private prejudices, right, held by individuals. But it's actually reproduced, it's produced, reproduced, and reinforced by laws and rules and practices, uh, often and many times sanctioned by various levels of government. Um, and it's actually embedded in the economic system as well as in our cultural and societal, societal norms. Uh, just an example of this, is the long-standing history um, redlining and racialized residential segregation. Um, another example is ma mass incarceration and police violence. You know, there's disparities in healthcare and unequal medical care. There's also, you know, you know, the effects of pollution in our most vulnerable communities. These various practices demonstrate some of the ways that our policies and our institutions actually are rooted in a U.S. racial hierarchy, the roots of which do go back to enslavement of African and indigenous peoples. Um, and so I think it's important to just kind of name that and state that um, right, you know, right at the outset that we are facing um, a systems level uh, issue with regard to different services, different experiences being um, had by different members of our, of our community, that all does have a root, and right, and, it, and that the root cause is historically informed. And it's also important to just tease out, you know, individual racism is a personal belief in the superiority of one race over another, but institutionalized racism is a system of assigning value and allocating opportunity based on skin color. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, some stat lines, right? In the United States, this just this past Monday, we just surpassed 500 deaths from COVID-19, right, according to data from the John, John Hopkins University. Black yeah. and Hispanic individuals are twice as likely to die from COVID-19 as white Americans and three times more likely to be hospitalized with the virus, according to stats of the CDC. So we see um, and experience the effects of structural racism um, and I think that's what really is the root and what explains so much of this differential impact that we see in our communities of color. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When you came to CCNY, um, as you were coming in, you said the challenges are the opportunities. With disruption 
comes the space to rethink and reimagine. And I know you were talking at the time about the work that lay before you um, directing the MPA program, but I want to maybe we can take that that idea and focus it a little bit on healthcare. I mean, this is a moment when the the problems and disparities in our healthcare system, as you just suggested, have become um, undeniable, undeniably obvious. And I wonder, can we, can we take that sentiment and look at the moment we're in right now and think about what it would look like to apply that lesson to healthcare in the United States? Absolutely, and I think that's such a great question. When we are challenged or face obstacles or this is especially true when we fail, um, and I'm talking about as a you know public servant, as civically engaged people. You know, when we're faced with these challenges, we have an opportunity to ask new questions, right? Um, to kind of reframe, reframe the problems in front of us. For healthcare, for me, what I've been seeing a lot um, in, in in literature and folks who write about um, these issues is, you know, there are questions about who is bearing the cost and who is really being hurt. And I think these kind of questions allow us an opportunity to center our marginalized community. So I think about the essential healthcare workers, right, in New York City, who were, were and continue to be on the front lines of this pandemic response. Um, and they make our society go, right? And we see that in our urban environment, that we cannot live without our nurses and our aides and our doctors, but we also can't live without our grocery workers and our delivery workers and all the other, uh, you know, communities that provide us, you know, this quality of life that we enjoy in New York. And so in reacting questions and, and, and seeing our challenges as, a, as an opportunity to kind of recenter and reframe the narrative, to center the folks who are typically um, hurt the most, right, harmed the most by the disproportionate impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. That is where we should be going to, to be looking for solutions, right, because um, the communities most affected and harmed are typically the ones that experience the many, the myriad of intersecting crises um, at the table. And so it's important for us to kind of start there, start with the folks who are the, have the closest proximity to the pain. And when we do that, you know, I, I, I think I would argue, uh, we actually expand our solution space. We get closer to the problem. We get closer to what ails our communities and as policymakers, as legislators, as administrators, uh, as movement builders, we then now have an opportunity to try to figure out what is the, the main narrative that needs to move us past where we are and how do we shift power to you know, the vulnerable communities so that they can take ownership of their communities and their, the, the development of their communities. Or so that from a healthcare space, you know, one example is, you know, with essential workers thinking about micromobility. How do our healthcare workers actually uh, get to work? They have been tasked with commuting during a pandemic when a lot of us um, can just work from home. Mm -hmm. And that in itself kind of belies a, a certain level of disproportionate impact. And so, you know, there's a movement of micromobility in terms of getting, you know, uh, bike share locations like you would see um, with City Bike in communities of color that have a higher proportion of essential workers 
um, so that they can better access work. And so it kind of, you know, by recentering our marginalized communities, we're able to um, identify solutions and implement solutions that level the playing field and make it uh, and, and generate equity as opposed to reinforcing the problem. Let me just follow up a little bit on this, because I, I wonder if uh, the solutions you've talked about so far have really been, you know, wise solutions that mobilize the capacity of neighborhood and, you know, advocates and activists. But w when you think about the policy environment for kind of fundamental changes in how we deliver healthcare, you know, you know recentering, as you put it, the, the communities that are most vulnerable, how do you assess the, the, the state of, of the policy environment? Should, should, should we be anticipating any real moves for fundamental change coming out of Albany or Washington or, 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 or the places where these decisions are made? So I have an interesting perspective on this because um, I do come from the private sector and working within the healthcare industry, specifically the home care industry in New York State. And the mm -hmm. one thing I've learned about um, the, the policy framework of New York State is that it is um, incredibly cumbersome and it does not at all center uh, an understanding of the whole experience of a community. What I've seen out of the current administration is a return to kind of core principles of public health, right? community-based participation and action. Um, at the outset of the pandemic, I think we had hospital hubs as a way to, for example, deliver vaccines. What we've seen recently out of the administration is an encouragement and focus on trying to uh, promote, support, and build up um, community infrastructure to deliver vaccines, um, as an example. R utilizing community messengers and community organizations to advocate for uptake of the vaccine and adherence to social distance protocols. In terms of New York State and the federal government, it's going to take push from the outside. And I think, you know, that's something that just, we just have to be honest about. I think there are very well-intentioned uh, folks who are joining this administration who have wonderful pedigrees and are laser focus on issues of equity, but the push has to happen from the outside. We have to be engaged in building movements that are rooted in our communities and then rooted in how our communities see transformation and how our communities see solutions to uh, the problems, you know, within their, you know, their geographic mm -hmm. location. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's the pairing of the inside-outside um, that'll allow us to, you know, start getting the work done of, of transforming our system into a more equitable one. We have on this campus a, uh, a podcast produced by Daniel Sachs called The Rights Talk. And you were a guest on that podcast recently. And in that appearance, you talked about the right to health from the bottom up. And it feels like that's kind of where you, what you were getting at in, in, in your kind of description of inside-outside pressure for healthcare reform. But could you elaborate on that and talk a little bit about um, where you see momentum for this right uh, uh, emerging? Absolutely. Uh, this is almost a personal philosophy of mine, right? Um, the right to health from the ground up. It, one, it kind of, for me, comes from um, the Article 25 of the United Nations 
um, universal declaration of human rights of states. Um, essentially that, you know, everyone has the right to a standard of living and adequate health and well-being uh, for themselves and their family, right? And this includes food and clothing and housing and medical care, right? And this is kind of this systems, you know, level thinking and holistic um, approach to, you know, community well-being and personal health. My work um, that I've been able and fortunate enough to, to um, participate in um, internationally. Uh, I lived in Thailand for, for some time and worked with public health organizations out in rural communities in, in, in Chiang Mai. Um, and I've also helped to pilot projects in Bangladesh um, focused on, you know, reducing uh, childhood, um, you know, infectious disease spread in children under five by just very simple, low, um, low-tech, high-impact um, you know, innovations such as just a pilot flooring project, just turning a dirt floor into concrete. And so for me, you know, the idea is that our communities are the cornerstone, right? And community health happens through community participation. In public health, we, we always talk about behavior change and from a larger, larger degree, right, in public service and administration, of, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, our civic space and our civic infrastructure, we kind of talk about you know, the solutions need to match the, the facts on the ground um, and they need to be human-centered and human-designed. That's the central concept that, for me, um, belies my own personal philosophy. Um, and that is of which, you know, you go to the people and you engage them in the process of identifying what the problem is and identifying what solutions are. And you let people lead. You let our community lead because from our communities, that's where we actually come from, right? As individuals, right? We're not divorced from our communities. We're embedded in community. I'm embedded now, fortunately, in the CCNY community. And so, you know, I'm even learning about the different resources and tools that I can leverage within my own community to better support my community. And it's that orientation, that perspective towards community that I think is what we need um, here, particularly with this pandemic as a health crisis, but also the, the pandemic and crisis of structural racism and the many tentacles that has um, across the different outcomes experienced by, um, you know, so many people. Um, so for me, you know, just to kind of summarize, it's, it, it, it's our community. Our community is our cornerstone. It's that's how we build um, better systems. Could we, we've been talking a lot about um, healthcare. It's, it's certainly the topic of the last year. But, you know, of course, your mandate uh, directing the MPA program, you're, you're concerned with developing leaders in a whole range of public administration fields. And, and you know, we, we hope that students that come into the MPA program will find jobs in city, state, government, all different fields. And I wonder if you could talk about the relationship between the scope of, of, of that educational mission and the civil rights struggle. You know, I, I know you come to this position as an activist and, and you know, how do you think about the relationship between the, the way you are provisioning young leaders coming out of our MPA program and the work that needs to be done to advance civil rights in the United States? Wow, that's a great question, Vincent. I appreciate it uh, because it makes me think of um, the idea of walking in the door um, that I have to find ways to cause good trouble, right, to make good trouble. 
Um, but more specifically, I think about a James Baldwin quote. Um, and the quote goes like this, the place in which I'll fit will not exist until I make it. And that for me informs kind of, you know, this art um, that, you know, we point back to the civil rights movement. And I think about now, and I still can't get the images of 2020 out of my mind, right? I can't get, um, um, you know, the murder of, of Mr. Floyd out of my brain, right? And I think about that in terms of what kind of activism and organizing and community building is necessary for our emerging leaders, folks who are, you know, interested in MPAs or professional development in the public service space. What kind of energy do they need to put in their activist um, orientations or in their community building orientations? And we have to be able to create the space for new leadership, for new types of leadership. Um, and I'm absolutely committed to that. And I, and I also am inspired. I think last week I was listening to um, a wonderful talk um, on, on, on new models of leadership um, through a joint program of, of, of SLU, CUNY, SLU, and um, the Colin Powell School. And, you know, it talked about new models of leadership and dispensing notions of the superhero and the idea that movements should not be centered around one person. And for me, that is especially relevant now for folks who are interested in professional studies, um, in, in, a, in a professional studies program like the MPA program, where mm -hmm. it's not just about you. It's about how you relate, yes, to your work, but it's also about how you and others relate to the work. And then what does that mean in terms of your influence on a larger community? Are you aligned with values? Are you practicing courage? in your day-to-day -day life? And do you have the tools? Are you equipped to have these difficult conversations to put forward uh, new um, and challenging but innovative solutions uh, that really do expand our solution space and are not just um, you know, tinkering on the edges, but really getting at the root and transforming as much of our institutions as we can? Because I think there's a simple truth that we have to uh, reconcile, which is our future America, our current America, and our future America is multi-ethnic and multiracial. And that multi-ethnic, multiracial component will be the majority of America. And so we have to try to create an America that works for everyone, right? And that that happens when we, you know, in my belief, that happens when we really understand our sense of agency, what we can actually do making sure that we have the tools and the capacities to effectuate positive change, but also having a really strong, deep, and comprehensive understanding of our ecosystem, right? Mm -hmm. The institutions that undergird um, the policies and the practices that we see playing out in real life, whether that's, you know, in terms of, you know, economic activity, or that's in terms of, you know, social services and what's offered to vulnerable communities. Um, and even in terms of social mobility, our ability to ourselves achieve, you know, the, the highest sense of well-being and health that we can, given our individual circumstances. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. You, you, you talked earlier about uh, community organizing uh, initiatives that you've seen and been involved with in uh, rural Thailand and, and Bangladesh. And, you know, it, it makes me think about the difference between 
community power in a setting like that and community power in in the United States. We we have community organizers, but they they tend to be um, people that that pull communities together in a moment of need or around a specific issue or a rent issue or and and then we sort of slip back into you know every every person for themselves or you know you so you make your way based on you know what you can earn in your career or what kinds of government programs you can participate in and you know what i see in these you know again bangladesh thailand is community organization is a stable consistent element of people's lives. It's where you go if you need credit. It's where you go if you need health. It's where you go if you have a grievance. And and so you get this this kind of leadership that is more organized, more embedded, and less episodic than we sometimes see in the United States. I think it's an interesting um reflection on this idea of, of a new leadership that we that 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 you're talking about. I think that's such a great point, Vince, and that that is absolutely one of the lessons that has really carried me through, even um, in this role, right during you know quarantine and um, with the awful you know, the social distancing and what seemed to be social almost disengagement <laughs> as that results mm-hmm. in this relying in a virtual space. But it's it's I you're I think you're spot on. Community is a source of stability, and that is so true in many of the other cultures and societies on this planet. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm first generation, you know, Haitian American, um, and I think about you know the communities that my family comes from, um, and I think about where that community power resides, and it's dispersed in the community. It's not congregated or um, it does not, you know, it's not all bunched up in one place. It really does travel through a community, almost like energy, and it's a a reservoir and a resource. Um, And you actually see that in community structures, particularly in Thailand. You cannot put together a health program that, you know, meets any um, particular challenges of like, let's say, cervical cancer screening without buy-in from community elders, without buy-in from the participants. eventual beneficiaries of that program. They have to understand um, and also drive the development of that program. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is, as I said at the beginning, this is the, this is our uh, program in the middle of black history month. And and I wonder if, if you can um, think a little bit about this model of, you know, there, there's so many challenges before the African-American community disparities of all kinds, structural racism, implicit bias, uh, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Could you talk about the role that this model of community empowerment and leadership development may have in this particular aspect of the challenges in front of African-American communities? Yeah, that, that, so the way I think about it is that this model and what, what we're trying to work on, and I also want to just be um, absolutely honest and candid in saying that I don't know what the right answer is. <laughs> Many experts don't have the right answers. It's kind of, you know, some of our work, right, um, is trying to excavate. And, and, and identify these relationships and figure out how can we can, you know, better leverage 
what we see happening in the dynamics in our environment uh, for the betterment of, you know, more of us. Um, but I see that we need to contribute to community advancement and community transformation. And I think from a, from a you know, a, a, a leadership development perspective, I think this means that treating ourselves as whole people, right, as, um, you know, a person that's just not, I, I'm not just working as executive director in an MPA program. Um, I'm a person that has all types of needs, right? I've realized, for example, that my mental health needs have been strict, right? I've been strained throughout this process. And it's been such an important um, thing that I've had to grapple with. And in conversations with my students, with faculty, with members of, of, of the community, you know, I actually realized that that is a shared experience. And so already there, we're expanding, you know, kind of our notions as to like, oh, how do I be a better leader then, right? If I have certain needs that are being unmet as a result of, you know, my external environment. And I think, you know, being able to, to, to incorporate that in leadership development by, you know, highlighting you know, you know, personal ecology and self-care and, and bringing that into the fold of leadership development um, and making sure that our competencies for leadership development do encompass other ways of being and, and ways of taking care of ourselves. Because if we're able to better take care of ourselves, we're able to better take care of our teams and we're able to do a better job of taking care of our communities. And so kind of almost like internalizing this systems approach not just you know internalizing it to me and how I feel and how I relate to my work, but also how you know the folks who rely on me relate to their work and how you know the folks I rely on how do they relate to their work and having these conversations uh, that allow us to get a more holistic and whole picture of how we show up in the world because I think that impacts the work that we do. I think in a more tangible way from our program perspective. I think that means making sure that our equity lens is always on, right? Having a social justice lens so that we can lead in efforts to undo systemic inequity, right? But, but, but also, you know, managing kind of a mindset that's one of public service, right? Managing change in the public's interest um, and doing that through collaboration, um, particularly across the many sectors, organizations, and groups um, that all have touch points to the various issues that we've been discussing so far. Oh, terrific. We have a second guest today. Uh, Mr. Clayton Banks is now joining our conversation. He's a co-founder and CEO of Silicon Harlem. And the mission of Silicon Harlem is to transform Harlem and other urban markets into innovation and technology hubs. But I got to tell you, that just uh, doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of it. He is um, a tireless advocate for bridging the, the digital divide. Um, works with young people in the area to 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 make sure that they are equipped to be full and fully empowered citizens in our new technology area uh, era. Under his leadership, Silicon Harlem has partnered with New York City's Department of Education to establish an after-school STEM-based startup accelerator program. Uh, he's collaborated with NYC Mayor's Office to assist wireless broadband. Um, the, the, the spread of wireless broadband in upper Manhattan. And he's also coordinated a virtual startup incubator for tech-based entrepreneurs. Um, he also produces Silicon Harlem's tech conference, which focuses on the internet and its impact on economic development in urban communities. 
He's been a pioneer in the cable and communications industry over for over 20 years. He's worked with MTV, ESPN, HBO, Essence Music Festival, and other uh, platforms. Mr. Banks worked with former President Bill Clinton to publish a first-of-its-kind interactive college guide series called The Key, which targets underserved communities and features historically black colleges and universities and Hispanic surveys and institutions. The Key was featured on CNN, New York One, Univision, several other media outlets around the country. He was appointed by five New York City borough presidents to serve on the Commission on Public Information and Communications for the City of New York, he attended California State University at Fullerton and received degrees in business administration and communications there. He also com completed a cable industry-sponsored executive management program at the Harvard Business School. Um, that's almost all the time we got for the show, folks. But um, Clayton, welcome <laughs> to some City of the World. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't be more proud to be on your show, Dr. Boudreaux. You're doing so much for the community of uh, New York City, and I uh, appreciate this. And what a long bio that you did not need to read, but I appreciate it. Oh, you know something, it just, I, I, and I know, I will say this again, it just scratches the surface. Um, but I'm, I'm thrilled to have you here and to talk about your work. So let me start by um, asking you just to kind of lay out uh, the, the, the work of Silicon Harlem in a little bit more detail than I was able to go into now. What, what are you working on? What do you hope to achieve? Well, thank you for that. And, and I, I do want to acknowledge um, listening to Bobby and, uh, and your conversation with him. He thought all your questions were great, as I did as well. Um, this one you're giving me is not that good. No, I'm kidding. I, I'm going to absolutely answer it, but I really appreciate uh, appreciated Bobby's input, and I hope to meet him soon and and share some best practices. Silicon Harlem has been very focused, um, very focused. We incorporated in 2014, and our mission and goal from that day to this day has been to ensure that uh, Harlem and other communities around the country are looking at technology as an economic driver. That means you need to understand broadband, you need to understand digital literacy, you need to see what's coming next from a technology perspective, and you need to understand uh, infrastructure. Because if there's one thing, and I know we'll talk about this towards uh, as we go through the interview, the divide that we're talking about, the digital divide, impacts all of that. So mm -hmm. we as a company have focused on intergenerational education. So we teach seniors, um, college, high school, middle school, elementary school, and even preschool young people on a variety of technology curriculum. If you can give that access and exposure, you're going to drive a very successful community that embraces technology as that uh, driver. The second thing that we've been focused on is, of course, connecting people through Internet. We've launched our new Internet service providing, which is called Better Broadband, and for short, it's called Better B, and we are very focused on getting affordable, if not free, internet to every single household in New York City and around the country. And we have an incredible way of doing it, uh, and we, we are already focused on affordable housing and any type of public housing that we can get our hands on uh, to ensure these families have that kind of infrastructure. So, so Silicon Harlem has a lot going on. We really look at it from 
uh, a way of galvanizing a community. As Bobby talked about, this, this can be done within the community. It's absolutely happening now. We've attracted a lot of companies into Harlem. We've been able to get funds from the National Science Foundation, working with academics like yourself, uh, the City College being a part of our Cosmos projects and the many other things you and I have talked about. This provides an environment where people can now look at potential and opportunity versus the systemic issues that have plagued so many of these type of communities. Hmm. You know, John Lewis, uh, who we had here as a commencement speaker, uh, I guess the last time we had an in-person graduation, has described the technology divide as the civil rights issue of our time. It's a powerful statement. And it, it, you know, it's not so different than some than things I've heard you say about the necessity of getting this this right in order to to make progress in our communities. Can you talk about the relationship between civil rights and and digital uh, technology, digital literacy? Yes, I'll go a little deeper than that. Um, I will bring it back to the civil rights, but I actually I go back as far as uh, Maslow's hierarchy. Right. If you look at the hierarchy of needs, um, it starts with, of course, your, your basic needs, your psychological needs. Well, I've decided to put another tier on the hierarchy of needs, and that's connectivity. Um, You've got to have connectivity to get to the rest of the needs, right? So another, in this era of our, of our world, you have to have connectivity to, in fact, uh, now, uh, particularly the pandemic has uh, revealed, whether it's food, uh, whether it's water, whether it's uh, basic electricity, all is being impacted by our digital infrastructure. So as far as I'm concerned, John Lewis was spot on on that. And, and I go uh, even another level, which is let's make it part of the actual basic needs that a human being needs. So when you look at it from a civil rights perspective, it's because you're looking at systemic discrimination since Lincoln's freed the slaves, right? There's been nothing but um, nothing but systemic discrimination since then. I mean, even if you look at the wealth gap, which I think is one of the things that has to be addressed uh, as much as any other divide, uh, the wealth gap being impacted by the digital um, infrastructure that we're all having to adapt to, John Lewis is right. That civil right, which also talked about the wealth gap, is now being even more exposed as a re- related to the pandemic. And I talk about the wealth gap, and I talk about all gaps as just pa- basic divides, is because that has an impact on everything you hope for, whether it's a good education, whether it's a good job, um, whether it's owning a home, all these things are impacted by this wealth gap. And if you look at the wealth gap between African Americans and and uh, white people, for the past 50 years, Dr. Boudreaux, there's been zero closing of that wealth gap. Zero. Yeah. And so this is not like a thing, it's a systemic issue. And I think that has to be dealt with as it was uh, addressed during the civil rights, it's now the digital rights that we must address in order for our uh, country to move forward. I think there's nothing more important. I agree with John Lewis 100%. You can't get educated these days without 
uh, a digital connection, uh, some sort of digital literacy. There was a report recently where a young girl, you know, the, the, the schools closing down have, you know, forced some people to figure out how to get food for their children, right? They, they relied on free lunch or, or discounted lunches. And now they are like fidgety when they're online with their teachers and the teachers will say, stop moving around. What's the matter? And it turns out that they're just hungry. Yeah. You know, that was yeah. a real big story about that this past weekend. And, and, and the little girl was a little white girl. I mean, you start to think it's all these black people. No, this is everyone. There's a wealth gap. We got to we got to close that up as well. So I have a question that's kind of, you know, I'm 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 formulating it based on what you just said. So so let let me mm-hmm. let me see if I can make it clear. You know, you talk about the the persistence of this wealth gap that you know, 50 years, no change. And you know, part of it is if you're a you know, if you're an African-American person in the old economy, you've got to take your body into somebody's building and they're going to tell you whether they're going to hire you, how much money you're going to make, you, you know, all of that. Digital technology, it strikes me that it operates a little bit differently. That I mean, there, there are opportunities, there's so many opportunities for people to build their own networks to build wealth in ways that don't require someone to say, yes, I'm going to hire you or I'm going to promote you. or I'm going to recognize the skills you have. Uh, you, you, you can be equipped with the right skills, a little bit of a free agent. And I, I just, I just wonder as you think about the persistence of the wealth gap and, and your entry point uh, thinking about digital technology, is there a specifically different kind of opportunity that technology presents to, to, to make some inroads against this problem? Well, it's a, it's a big question and, and it requires a big answer. And part of that is, you know, I think the, the um, sort of the challenge we have is, is figuring out how you get past the widespread, if you will, distrust, right? There's just a distrust within the black community because of the, of the pain that's happened over decades. So this idea of uh, sort of a two-way thing has to happen here. Uh, those who are in a level of power and in making decisions that you're talking about um, must embrace the idea that uh, we're all the same and we should all have the same opportunity and access. On the other side of it, if, you're, if you feel like, you know, you can't, dist- you can't trust a system, um, you got to figure out how to free your mind and understand you're worthy of everything that you are working for. So this is a complicated and, and not easy thing, but I do believe that this is the best opportunity we'll ever have in, a, in, in, in decades, right? You used the word earlier with Bobby, reflection, and I, and mm-hmm. I uh, agree with that. I also add inflection, right? We are at an inflection point. And in order for us to have that equity that I think you're, you're sort of marching towards, we've got to figure out how do we drive down some of those systemic issues that have created disadvantages all throughout the various sectors of our society, whether it's private or public or social. All those things have been impacted uh, by these unfortunate disparities. So, uh, not a great answer, but part of the challenge here is 
the best opportunity we have, I, I hate to say it this way, but almost the pandemic and the digital divide has uh, opened up enough of this portal to where we have the best opportunity to, to bring equity to all communities. I believe that that's why we are here right now, is that we have this great opportunity and it's, and it's people like John Lewis who, who had to be bitten by dogs and sprayed and almost killed uh, to make just the move that he made. So I'm willing to make as much of a move, and I know you are too, to do the same thing. You gotta really break this down and there's no better opportunity we have than right now. Yeah, you know, there's a certain kind of person that looks at a crisis and says, well, this is how we clear away the underbrush and build something better on top of it. And and I know you're one of those people. I'm really glad to have you here today. Clayton, you've worked in a lot of different fields over your career. I mean, there, there, there are some themes that tie it together. But, but one of the things that's really striking, you touched on it earlier when you talked about intergenerational education, is your focus on on young people uh, and, and getting them involved in technology as, as early as possible. Could you talk a little bit about why that's, that's been a particular focus of your energy? Yeah, certainly. So the, you know, the new FCC chairperson is uh, Jessica Rosenworcel, and she coined a phrase many years ago and, and sort of announced it at our conference in 2014. And she, uh, at that time, she was just a, a commissioner on the FCC. Uh, she's now the chairperson under the Biden administration. And she coined a phrase in 2014 called the homework gap. And I was very clear that there was disparity in there, but the way she framed it around, it, you know, connectivity and computers and technology really uh, hit me hard. And I know that I grew up in a very fortunate way that I had great parents and, you know, my father was a, a lifelong military man. And one of the things that they provided me as a child was an encyclopedia set. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so having an encyclopedia, I love those books. I mean, I had the children's level. So, I mean, I was able to see nice, beautiful things. And I was, I felt like when the teachers would tell me I'm the smartest guy in the class. And I was like, how could that happen? All my friends are smart, but I had something a lot of people didn't have, which was an yeah. encyclopedia set. Right, so this right. never, never has been about a level of intelligence. Mm -hmm. When I did work with, uh, uh, when I did have time with uh, President Clinton, you know, he would say all the time that intelligence is distributed everywhere evenly, but access and um, and exposure is not. And that also stuck with me. And I felt like, that's crazy. How could that be? You know, and as a young child, I had a lot of access, a lot of exposure, all my friends from all different types of places because you lived on a military base. Mm -hmm. And I just knew how the world's supposed to operate. And when I, my father retired, you got out into civilian world, you go, oh, there's really rich people and really poor people. In mm -hmm. my neighborhood, everyone had a mother and a father. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I didn't yeah. know you could have a single parent. So all that led me to figuring out from a very early age, how do I fix this? <laughs> so it's been taking my life's work to bring more access and exposure to as many people as I possibly can. And that's why I focus on young people, because it impacts their parents and, and everyone else in their family. And that works for me. Yeah. We say at City College that, that um, you know, one person in a family 
if that person is the first one to go to college, they change the whole history of their family. And turning somebody on to the possibilities of technology and, and their capacity to navigate that world must must operate in a real similar way. Well, I so recently I, had a family, very quickly, story here, a family yeah. that came to me and said, hey, we don't have a computer. They didn't get one from from the school and all this other stuff. And luckily, um, working with you and others, I had I had some extra infrastructure. I gave it to the family. Well, not only did the young kids that were in the home were able to finally get online with their teachers, but the parents who got laid off of their, um, you know, regular jobs ended up creating a cleaning company, put it online, and was able to survive through this pandemic. It's transformative. Oh, wow. Wow, what a story. Hey, do you have a list of things that we must do or we must work for to come out on a more equal footing out of this pandemic. Um, you, you know, it's again, so much has been disrupted that it feels like, you know, we're, we're sitting on the floor of the, of the living room with the very, with pieces of our society that were broken already. And, you know, this might be a good time to create an inventory of things that will help us as we come out of the pandemic to do better in the future. What, what would your list be if you had one? Well, it starts with connectivity for all. Mm -hmm. Everyone needs to have Internet in the home. We must achieve that within this decade. That is the uh, John Lewis, that's Martin Luther King, that's mm -hmm. Gandhi. Everyone has uh, acknowledged that connectivity is at the core of survival on this earth. So that's the number one and I believe that cities and states and countries must embrace this, and I think we're getting there, that everyone needs, needs a connection, just like electricity and water and things of that nature. So that's first on my list. Second, to your point, is we start to look at how do we bring parity to every zip code? How do we increase the level of access and exposure for the population in these oftentimes mitigated communities. How do we bring that to another level? And the way we do that is we create a, uh, what I call a one mission, right? One mission that we can all get around and, and collaborate around. That's been working for us at Silicon Harlem uh, with working with academics and stakeholders and all of our public and private supporters bring to the table all of those voices and we're able to solve some of these systemic issues. And my last piece is I think there's got to be some level of of just humanity, right? So technology has been one of these things that's good and bad at the same time. It's great because it gives you opportunity. It's not great when it is um, not fair or not accessible for everyone. So I think we've got to work really hard to demystify technology, make it the opportunity for everyone, and I believe people will be inspired and look at another person as a human versus as something else, and that will put put us in a whole new trajectory as a world. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to bring it back to the the kind of underlying theme of of the conversation today, which is Black History Month. We have a few days left of the specific celebration of of, of Black History. Not not to say that it should be 
segmented from the way we talk about, you know, general history in the United States. Um, and Harlem is a, you know, it is a, it is a beautiful place to be, you know, in general. But, but during this month in particular, you're a California guy, as you said earlier. And um, I wonder, but you've become deeply embedded in, in the social and political and economic fabric of Harlem. Could, could you just talk a little bit about what it means to you, you know, personally, professionally, socially, to be in this place um, during this month? Well, I, I do, and I and uh, I love New York City. I particularly love Harlem. Uh, it is truly a state of mind. Harlem, mm-hmm. uh, as Lloyd Williams would say from the Greater Harlem Chamber of Commerce, that Harlem is more of a state of mind than just a place. And Silicon Harlem, we try to craft that as, as in the same way that you would say Silicon Valley which in a lot of ways is also not a place. It's more of a state of mind. So Silicon Harlem wanted to create a state of mind that said technology for all, um, Mm -hmm. that there's opportunities, that this community can be driven by its own effort. If we give them the access and the exposure, which Silicon Harlem is able to do, I created a concept that you're very aware of and a part of, which I call community as a platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, and why that is important is because you want to make sure that um, companies and um, foundations start to realize that Harlem is the right place to uh, look at advanced technology, look at how we can move this community forward. It's a, a tremendous uh, part of New York City that's full of innovators. If you look at our history, right? Harlem has been a launch pad on so many different levels. If you look at some of the greatest black inventors, since we're talking about, you know, Black History Month, you can look at Lewis Howard Latimer or Mm -hmm. Granville T. Woods. These are pioneers just in telecommunications. That's my world. So, I mean, these are people that I stand on their shoulders to try to continue that progress that we've been making over so many years in Harlem. So when you are standing on those shoulders, I feel very... um, humbled, if you will, that anything that we do that may make an impact is just inc- extraordinary. So you're right, Harlem. And if you look at City College and those who, who've emerged out of City College with incredible patents and all the kind of work that's been going on at City College and other universities around New York City, or, or the fact that there's 14 colleges in Harlem. I mean, mm-hmm. so we, we have mm-hmm. nothing but a brain trust in Upper Manhattan. And more and more people should tap into that become collaborators with us, please contact me in Silicon Harlem. We're happy to be uh, collaborating with people on any type of, of movement that's going to move the people. Well, thank you for that. And and you know that, that as an institution, we are eager to partner with you on that, on that work. Gentlemen, you don't know that I always have a hidden agenda when I put a, a, a guest list together for these, for these calls, which is I, I you know, I think about someone on the campus who's doing work that is somehow connected with someone in the community doing analogous work, but I also want to use it as a forum for making sure that people who need to know each other have an opportunity to hear one another speak. And and, and so I hope whatever else comes out of today's show, the the MPA program, Clayton will be on in your radar and, and, and Bobby, as you start thinking about 
this new leadership that you're you're working so hard to 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 create that that silicon harlem is 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 also a part of the landscape that you see when you look out the window of your of your of your office here on campus um, i want to thank both of you uh for the conversation today it, you know what a, what a great way to to end the month uh with both of you in 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 your distinct ways looking forward to to a to a better a better way so um bobby durval i want to thank you clayton banks uh Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreau. Uh, I'd like to thank Bobby Duraval, Executive Director of the Master's in Public Administration Program at the Colin Powell School here at CCNY, and Clayton Banks, co-founder founder and CEO of Silicon Harlem, and so much more. The show is produced by Angela Harden, yours truly, Vince Boudreau. I am your host, Vince Boudreau, and want to say one more time, thank you um, to Bobby Duraval, and Clayton Banks, you've, you've made this a really engaging conversation. I'm grateful to both of you. This was wonderful. Thank you, Thank you so much.